Would you join me in prayer? Holy Spirit, your people call out for understanding. Bring to our yearning hearts and minds the truth of your word. Amen. It's so good to see all of you here today and all of our guests, especially our scouting guests. We welcome you and we're so glad that you're with us. You've come on a Sunday when we started at the beginning of, uh, actually the end of December, and we are continuing to Easter in which we are preaching the gospel of Mark from the beginning all the way through to the end. And you've come when we're in chapter 6. And and as we're exploring these first uh, few chapters of of Mark, we've been looking at the risk that people take in the gospel, the risk that Jesus takes, the risk his disciples take, the risk that the people around him take. And today you're coming to hear about the risk of rejection. One day I sat in my manager's office long before I ever dreamed of being here in front of you, and we were talking about the help desk that I managed. And I think I mentioned some wild idea I'd had, probably in the shower, it's where I do my best thinking. And he was all enthusiastic, asked me why I hadn't said something sooner. Well, I don't know, I shrugged. Maybe because we've never done anything like it, and, and it probably won't even work. It'll fail. Well, I didn't see Rusty angry often, but he was mad at that. Why, he demanded, is everyone so afraid of failing? Have I ever sanctioned someone who took a risk that didn't work out? How can we ever do anything new if we are afraid to try? We had a good point. We often let our fear of failure stop us from taking a risk, big or small. We're afraid of how people, uh, other people might perceive our lack of success. When I was exploring my call to ministry, my sister and I had this heart-to-heart talk, and she really discouraged me. She thought it was a harebrained idea. And earlier, in my 20s, I'd done something a little bit like it. I had left my job and I had gone back to school with the goal of getting my PhD and being a professor in political science at a university. I knew I didn't want to spend my life in corporate America writing code. So I went to the University of Texas as a PhD student and I lasted a year. At first I thought I was discontent because it was hard to get back into the academic role and and but then I came up with straight A's. I said, well, I guess I can do the academics. But I didn't get, there was still something wrong. It just wasn't the right fit. And when I realized it wasn't for me, I called my boss and said, can I have my job back? You could argue that if I talked to my pastor and done some serious discernment work, I might have gone into the ministry a decade earlier than I did. But in my sister's eyes, I had failed. I had done something different. It had not worked. And I had come home with my tail tucked between my legs. But as I thought about what she said, I realized she wasn't right. I'd followed a dream, which turned out not to be quite how I imagined. But if I had never taken the risk, I would never have known and have always regretted that to the end of my days. Have you ever felt that way? 
So today we're talking about the risk of rejection, of failing. We're going to hear about three times when Jesus and the disciples risked being rejected. And sometimes their fears were realized. They were rejected. And as we reflect on them, I invite you to look at your life and at our life as a church. Do we take risks or do we play it safe? Have you ever given yourself permission to take a risk that might result in rejection or failure? Have we, as a body, given this church permission to take risks that may not succeed? Well, in the course of his journeys, Jesus has returned home to Nazareth. Mark, Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Jesus left that place and came to his hometown. His disciples followed him. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. Many who heard him were surprised. Where did this man get all this? What's the wisdom he's been given? What about the powerful acts accomplished through him? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't he Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Are his sisters here with us? They were repulsed by him and fell into sin. Jesus said to them, Prophets are honored everywhere except in their home their own hometowns. Among their relatives and in their own households, he was unable to do any miracles there, except that he placed his hands on a few sick people and healed them. He was appalled by their disbelief. You know, in other churches, we've had uh, often had a youth Sunday in which, like the scouts today, the youth took over the service. But unlike what the scouts have done today, there's one important difference. There was a youth who preached the sermon. Aren't you boys glad I didn't make you do that? (laughs) And you can understand how that chosen youth was always nervous, petrified, worried that he was going to do something wrong or fail or not succeed. But I always reassured him. I said, you could stand in the pulpit and read cereal boxes to the congregation and they will love you. Because that was their youth. They loved that person. They took care of him. They were proud of his courage, his willingness to take a risk. Well, that's not the attitude of Jesus' hometown congregation. When he goes to church that Sabbath and begins to teach, well, at first the people are surprised. They begin to talk amongst themselves. Isn't this Mary's boy? We know his brothers and sisters. Where did he get all this? Who does he think he is? Who gave him this authority? They go from surprise to disgust pretty quickly. Mark says they are repulsed by him. That's a pretty strong word. That they are so repulsed they fall into sin. Now, for Mark, we're not sure what that sin is. Luke, who also tells this story, about how he's rejected in his hometown synagogue, says that the people in the synagogue got so mad at Jesus that they tried to throw him off a cliff. Well, I'd say that's falling into sin, wouldn't you? Jesus doesn't seem especially surprised at what happens, saying prophets are honored everywhere except among those who know them best. But he is appalled at their unbelief. And there's a consequence. Jesus' power is diminished. Some people risk coming to him for healing, and he heals them. 
but he is unable to do much because the people have no faith. Last week, if you were here, we heard him say to the woman with the issue of blood that her faith had made her well. And this week we see the opposite. The lack of faith inhibits Jesus. Think about this for a minute. Earlier in our study of Mark, I talked about John Wesley's teaching the Methodists about responsible grace. That, that we have a part in this relationship. That we have to accept God's inv- invitation to follow. That we participate in God's work in our lives. All of it empowered by God, but we still have to say yes. Here is an example of what happens when we refuse to participate. God is still present, but we can actually limit God's power and effectiveness with our unbelief. However, notice that God is not just present, but he's still active, even when we don't believe. I I always think, though I don't necessarily say to tell people who tell me they don't believe in God, that that's okay because God still believes in you. God is still with you, even if you say you don't believe. But God is limited because of that unbelief. One of the best illustrations for taking the risk on God that I know comes from the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. The scene is literally called a leap of faith. Indiana and his father, who's played by Sean Connery, are in search of the Holy Grail, the cup used by Jesus at the Last Supper. It's supposed to have healing properties, and Indy's father has been gravely wounded and needs it desperately. Indy is following the clues to the cup. Take a look. Do you hear what his father said? You must believe. You must have faith. For Indy, the consequences of doing nothing outweigh the risk of failing. What do you think God could do among us when we have faith, when we believe that the consequences of doing nothing are greater than the risk of failing? I think we as this church have seen that in the last year when we too took a leap of faith and our faith has not been in vain. Now it's Jesus' turn to take a risk on others. Mark chapter 6, verses 6 through 13. Then Jesus traveled through the surrounding villages teaching. He called for the twelve and sent them out in pairs. He gave them authority over unclean spirits. He instructed them to take nothing for the journey except a walking stick. No bread, no bags, and no money in their belts. He told them to wear sandals, but not to put on two shirts. He said, whatever house you enter, remain there until you leave that place. If a place doesn't welcome you or listen to you, as you leave, shake the dust off your feet as a witness against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should change their hearts and lives. They cast out many demons and they anointed many sick people with olive oil and healed them. So Jesus is thinking ahead. He's preparing the disciples for the time when he will not be with them anymore. And he gives them very specific instructions. 
To say that they are traveling light is an understatement. They are a TSA agent's dream. (laughs) Jesus wants them to depend upon God and to give the people they meet the opportunity to take a leap of faith by welcoming them and their message. But he's also realistic. Jesus knows that not everyone will be open to the good news of the kingdom of God and that these missionaries will be rejected at some point. That's still true for us. Scott Jones is now the bishop of the Texas Annual Conference, the conference from which I came. But before he was a bishop, he was the evangelism professor at Perkins School of Theology at Southern Methodist University. He was my evangelism professor. So I got to hear Scott's stories. He started life as a Methodist pastor, and he'd been appointed to the town of Prosper, Texas. It's much bigger than it was when he served there. It was a relatively small town, perhaps a little bigger than Mariposa, but had that small Texas town feel. And he had a parsonage that he lived in. And he wasn't the first pastor to live there. It was known that the Methodist pastor lived in this house. Next door was a neighbor who didn't go to any church, who professed to have no faith. And I'm sure like every other Methodist pastor who had been in that parsonage, Uh, Scott tried to evangelize him, to share the good news with him by inviting him to come to church for special events. And every time he was met with no, no, thanks, but no. Even some amusement at his continued efforts. Well, as is the case of all Methodist preachers, eventually Scott moved on from Prosper to the next church he was appointed to. And he ran into someone a, a short time later from the town, and they were catching up on what was going on. And and the man from Prosper said, You remember your neighbor? Oh, yeah, Scott said. How could I forget him? He says, He is in church every Sunday. Well, what happened? He said he was having lunch at his desk at work one day, and this guy walked by and tossed the Bible on his desk and said, You should read this. And he picked it up and he started reading, and he's in church every Sunday. Scott says, that is the one thing I didn't try was giving him a Bible. (laughs) You know, we've done this in the past. We'll do it again for Easter where we put together invitation cards to people to come and worship with us on special Sundays like Christmas and Easter. And I know that people get discouraged. I've heard people say, I've invited five, six, ten people. And none of they all give me an excuse. It's discouraging. But guess what? That's what Jesus said would happen. And when it does, do you know what we're supposed to do? Say, thank you, and move on. We don't know what seed we've planted in this person's life and how that may open them up to the next invitation. Jesus' advice is good for us today. Don't dwell on it. Don't beat yourself up. Shake off the dust from your shoes and move on. But do know that you have planted a seed. And someday that seed may sprout just like those bean seeds have sprouted with um, Abigail and the others. In fact, the disciples already see fruit from their mission. And so will we. The next story of rejection doesn't involve Jesus directly, but his cousin, John. 
Herod the king heard about these things. Because the name of Jesus had become well known, some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and this is why miraculous powers are at work through him. Others were saying, he is Elijah. Still, others were saying, he's a prophet like one of the ancient prophets. But when Herod heard these rumors, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised to life. He said this because Herod himself had arranged to have John arrested and put in prison because of Herodias, the wife of Herod's brother, Philip. Herod had married her, but John told Herod, it's against the law for you to marry your brother's wife. So Herodias had it in for John. She wanted to kill him, but she couldn't. This was because Herod respected John. He regarded him a righteous and holy person, so he protected him. John's words greatly confused Herod, yet he enjoyed listening to him. Finally, the time was right. It was one of Herod's birthdays when he had prepared a feast for his high-ranking officials and military officers and Galilee's lion being a leading resident. Herod's daughter, Herodias, came in and danced thrilling, Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the young woman, Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. Then he swore to her, Whatever you ask, I will give to you, even as much as half of my kingdom. She left the banquet hall and said to her mother, Mother, what should I ask for? John the Baptist's head, Herodias replied. Hurrying back to the ruler, she made her request. I want you to give me John the Baptist's head on a plate right this minute. Although the king was upset because of his solemn pledge and his guests, he didn't want to refuse her. So he ordered a guard to bring John's head. The guard went to the prison, cut off John's head, brought his head on a plate and gave it to the young woman, and she gave it to her mother. When John's disciples heard what happened, they came and took his body and laid it on the tomb. So Mark engages in flashback to tell us what happened to John after he baptized Jesus. John angers the powers that be, specifically Herod, the ruler of Galilee, because of his choice in a wife. Mark says that John preached against the marriage because Herodias had been married to Herod's brother. She was his sister-in-law. The reality is actually a little more complicated than that. Herodias is actually the daughter of Herod's half-brother. So she was his niece. And she married two of her uncles. Well, Herod arrests him for it. But Herod has this strange fascination for John. Mark says that he would bring John up from his cell to hear him preach. He regarded him as a holy and righteous person, even though he didn't understand a lot of what John said. And for a while, he protected John from Herodias' anger. But then comes Herod's birthday. He has a party, and he makes this foolish promise to his wife's daughter. I mean, come on, really. Half your kingdom because she did a good dance? (laughs) He doesn't expect the request that comes. He expects requests for jewels or money or clothes. She goes to her mother and she says, tell him you want the Baptist's head on a platter. Well, Herod is caught in a dilemma. He's made this very public promise, but the request is grotesque. What he should have done was sing some meatloaf to her. I'll do anything for love, but I won't do that. Instead, he puts his own interests before a human life. 
an innocent human life, a holy and righteous human life. This is not a story about the rejection of Jesus or his disciples, but Mark is foreshadowing what will happen to Jesus when he gets to Jerusalem. In this passage, Mark reminds us that among the forces of the world, when self-interest comes into conflict with the kingdom of God, the kingdom and its messengers will be rejected. John wasn't beheaded because he baptized people in the Jordan. Jesus wasn't crucified because he healed people. They were rejected and killed because they demanded a fundamental change in relationship. They said to have life, truly have an abundant life, a life eternal, you must reorder your priorities. Set aside self and put love of God and neighbor as your highest priorities. Now tell that to Harvey Weinstein or corporate boards or Wall Street. They will reject it. They will reject us. But that is the life of a disciple, to deny self and serve others, to take up a cross. Let me give you an idea of just how radical that might be in the life of a disciple. Kate Braestrup is a Unitarian chaplain, and she was going to seminary, and she was talking to her son, about the age of some of our scouts here, about Jesus and what he taught. And she was telling him how he taught that his disciples should put others before themselves. And his, her son thought about that a minute. He says, so then there must be no Christians in heaven. And she said, well, what, what do you mean? She says, well, if they are supposed to put others before themselves, would they not give up their place in heaven for someone else? Radical thought, isn't it? For a lot of us, that's why we came to faith, to get to heaven. Would you give it up for someone who wouldn't deserve it? Jesus did that for us. He gave up his place in heaven, came to earth, and emptied himself to the point of death on a cross for our sakes. Do you want to sing meatloaf? I'll do anything for Jesus, but I won't do that. John records followers of Jesus turning away, rejecting him and his message when the difficulty of following him gets to be too much. We've, we've solved that problem. We just make it easy. Probably all of us at one time or another have felt that Jesus just asked too much. I know I have. The passage that Keegan read is actually similar to last week's story about the healing of the woman with the issue of blood and Jairus' daughter. For those of you who weren't here, I will refer you back to chapter 5 to read this. In other words, we start with one story, the healing of the little girl, and it's interrupted by another. In seminary circles, they call it a Markin sandwich. This happens again here, but it's hard to catch because the ending of the first story is so short. 
We started with the disciples being sent out and then heard about the death of John the Baptist. And the end of the first story comes in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him everything they had done and taught. They come back celebrating. But there's a warning in the middle. After Mark tells us about John's death, the rejection of his message and ministry by the powers of the world, he brings back those whom Jesus has sent. And notice they have a different name. The apostles return to Jesus. A disciple is one who follows. An apostle is one who is sent. The ones who return are both disciples and apostles, followers and sent out. You and I are disciples and apostles. We follow. We are sent out. And we too risk rejection by the hometown crowd, by those with whom we share the good news, by the world. But we go out with authority and we return to the one who sent us. At the end of every service, we proclaim that we go out into the world to be God's people. And you are sent out in the strength of the Spirit to share good news, just like the disciples. And like them, we return to Jesus. In the accounts of the Gospels, in our prayer life, and in our worship. We come for encouragement and strength. And we hear Jesus remind us that the world didn't love him, and it won't love us. Now I always try to end a sermon with hope. And sometimes, as I read through this, I'm going, doesn't sound very hopeful, does it? Well, here, here's the good news. We can play it safe, like Herod, seeking to please the people around us, never risking rejection. Or we can take a leap of faith, like Indiana Jones, and risk it all on the way that leads to that abundant life eternal. Amen.